Good morning, beloved. Early Christmas present. This will likely not take as long as usual because my voice will likely give out at some point. Um, So forgive me for being a little standoffish today. I'm trying to not share whatever the recycling stuff in my throat is. It's not good. Um, Other than that, I feel good. I'm excited to jump in with you. So as we get started, I think, I think that it's important for us to, to kind of see, like, we're starting a new gospel, and this is gospel or good news. This is a story. This is gospel, actually, God's spell. This is God's story. This is his story, and we're going to be walking through the gospel of John. If you're new to Beloved Church in the last year, uh, we started with this annual rhythm, and so we're going into the fourth gospel account, that we would start with Christmas being the start of a gospel, and then taking that to Easter with the death and resurrection um, the, towards the end of a gospel. And so this year, we're going to be launching into the book of John, which is my favorite. And so buckle up. Yeah, um, I'm very excited. But as we start a new story, if you think about just storytelling in general, the importance of introducing a character cannot be overemphasized. When you meet a new character in a story, the way that that character is introduced, if the storyteller is of any worth, is going to really set the tone for how you see that character throughout the rest of the story. So we need to look at the way that this is going to affect this character in every subsequent scene. So think with me. I'm sure that no one would offend me by saying they don't enjoy Pirates of the Caribbean. Huh? Yeah? Oh, man. Um, Jack Sparrow. Jack Sparrow. The introduction of Jack Sparrow. The first time that you see Jack Sparrow, you recall this? Jack Sparrow, he has an amazing hat. This is one of my prized possessions. Um, but don't, don't ask. You don't, you don't want to know. Um, <clears throat> Jack Sparrow shows up on the scene, and, and it's kind of this close-up. You, you get this visual of Jack Sparrow, hat is donned, very flamboyant pirate wear, and his face is just resolute and set. He's gazing off into the distance, past the camera, and you see him, and you see clouds, and, and you hear the wind rustling, you see it blowing through his hair, and it zooms out a little, and you see that he's standing there holding on to the crow's nest at the top of his vessel. And you just see the determination that he has a goal. This man is on a mission. And there's so much character wrapped up in just what you see, the things he's wearing, the scars on his face, the makeup, everything about it, just like, wow, this is a character of depth and determination. And then all of a sudden, he jumps down from the crow's nest following this rope, except it's only like a five-foot drop, because as the camera zooms out, you realize he's just in a little rowing dinghy, and it's sinking. And so he takes the bucket, and he's bailing the water out, And then he looks over as he bails the water out, and a couple of pirates have been hanged as their execution, and a sign that says, pirates, be warned. And he takes his hat off and crosses it over his heart. And that's your introduction to the character of Jack Sparrow. And you realize that in that introduction, they have beautifully crafted this story to where you see the depth of this character, and yet just kind of the frivolous, the the triviality, the the weirdness of such a man. So Everything you need to know, every encounter you have with Jack Sparrow from that point forward is shaped by the way that they introduced him to us in that scenario. That one scene, that one introduction tells us everything we need to know about who this Jack Sparrow is. Captain Jack Sparrow throughout the story will show up and it's still this same weird dichotomy. This is this character that is mesmerizing and and exciting. He, He captures us, he excites us, and yet he's just so silly. And so the character being introduced is is so important for us as we track through the story. And so introductions are important, okay? Hold that. 
Now, we're going into a story, the gospel according to John, that John the apostle has written this story. And so he wrote a story. It's going to help us to kind of understand the structure of the story. This is largely how we're going to be walking through this sermon series. But the gospel of John is broke down into four parts. So you have an epilogue, I'm sorry, a prologue. This is the start. This is the first 18 verses of chapter one. And then you have book of signs, which is chapters one through 12 approximately. And then you have the book of glory. And that's chapters 13 on through 21. Um, and, and then at the end, chapter 21 has an epilogue. And so he has these bookends. He's going to introduce and he's going to conclude with these, these beautiful things. And then in the middle, there's kind of two books there. One is a book of signs, Jesus showing who he is. And then the book of glory that's leading up to the hour of glory. And the hour is a repeated reference throughout this book that's always kind of drawing you along as the reader into the climax of the story. And so that is the structure of John, but now we need to look at what is the purpose of John. It's good to know what an author is intending to do when they're writing a story. And so for the purpose of John, we can see it explicitly said towards the end, as we get to that epilogue, chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, listen to what it says. John writes this, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of this book. This is the reason that John would take the time to write all this down. This is why I wrote this down. So you could believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that you may have life in his name when you believe. What a massive claim. What a massive claim that you, world, everyone who would ever encounter these words, that you would have the opportunity to know who Jesus is and that by knowing who he is, you'd have the opportunity to believe him. And if you believe in him, you will have life. Like That's the purpose for writing this. This is why he wants you to know him, so that you could have life in his name. That's a massive claim. And now that begs the question, we go back. If John is going to make such a claim as this, that this character, Jesus, is going to provide life for you, then how does John introduce this character? How would John introduce a character who would be so significant, so important to the world, that the world would find life in his name? How would John introduce him? And so turn with me to John chapter 1, and let's look at how he introduces this character. John chapter 1. If we start in the first verse. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Does that sound familiar to you? If you've ever read the very beginning of the entirety of the Bible, it should sound very familiar. <laughs> Genesis 1.1, the first book of the Bible, the first verse starts and says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now John starts his gospel. He introduces this character of Jesus and says, in the beginning, same exact wording, was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John begins his gospel by going all the way back to the very beginning. We cannot go back any further than this. We know nothing of prior to this. We go all the way back and we say, what was there? God was there. Before the beginning, and at the beginning, what was present? God was present. And who was with God? The Word. And the Word was God. This is who was at the beginning. And if we jump down to verse 14, um, read it with me. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So who is the Word? Who is with God and was God at the beginning? The one who was born into humanity, namely Jesus Christ. And so as John wants to introduce this character that all of this story is going to wrap around, it's going to focus on him. He wants to start from the very beginning saying, I'm going to take you back all the way to the beginning. That Jesus was in the beginning. This builds for us a Trinitarian theology. That somehow the word Jesus was with God and was God. And this is amazing to us. And this is something we cannot fully wrap our minds around. But this idea that God is one, there is one God. And yet that one God is in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the Son who was God himself with God the Father in the beginning. That Jesus was there. What a claim. And it calls him the Word. I think that's kind of strange. Like, why wouldn't he just say, in the beginning, Jesus was there. There with God the Father, and Jesus was God. Why does he say word, and why is it capital W in our translations in English? What is this word? If we look into this, uh, we'll start with English, because that's the language that we're speaking in right now. Um, English Oxford Dictionary definition of word means a single distinct meaningful element of speech or writing used with others or sometimes alone to form a sentence and typically shown with a space on either side when written or printed. In other words, in English, word means it's something that is used to communicate or express meaning. There's meaning involved in this. And so John's claim as he introduces this character of Jesus, do you want to find meaning? Do you want to know what makes sense of all of this? When we go back to the beginning, we see that here is meaning himself, as in Jesus. And this text, this book, was originally written in Greek, as it was given to us. And if you go back into the Greek, um, the Greek word here for word is logos. And logos, this Greek word, actually has to do with reasoning or order. Sometimes the Greeks would take this even further into this principle, this reasoning or logical principle that's ordering the cosmos. What's holding all of this together? What is it that makes sense of all this? And so you can see how these are so closely tied together. Or logos sounds like our English word logic, very close. That's where we get this word. And so what is the logic behind all of this? What is the principle? What is the thing that's holding all this together? In Greek, it was the logos, the word. Or in Hebrew, as John would have been a Hebrew boy, largely it's thought that he was probably a teenager in his time with Jesus. And so John, as a Hebrew boy, an Israelite, a Jew, what would he think when he hears this word that we see as logos or word? The Hebrews would think very similar, but they would tie this to God's communication that holds power, that there's power behind this, this thing that holds everything together and gives purpose and meaning and order to things. There's power here. The, the Hebrews don't think that words just have the power to communicate, but also the power to create. And you know that that's true here now. That I can say things in an encounter with you that simply just communicate. The restrooms are to my right. Or I can say things that would actually create a moment. You can use your words to just communicate something, or you can actually create a new reality. And we are limited in that, and yet we see how we still, in our limitations as finite creatures, can do the very same thing. And yet God is infinite. And as he uses words to hold things together and bring order, he also creates in his power. And John is saying, this is Jesus. He is the one with the power to create. And this actually leads us beautifully into verse 3. Look at what verse 3 says. It says, all things were created through him, and apart him from him was not one thing created that was created, or that has been created. 
So Jesus is the one who has created all things. It's through him. Apart from him, nothing has been created that has been created. Everything that has been created came through Jesus. He is the Logos. He is the one with the power to create. It comes through him. He was in the beginning and brought about all of what we know as creation. Jesus. And this, again, you've got to remember, this is John saying, guess who he is? Let me start with this. This is my introduction. As you hear all the stories that follow, remember, this is him, the creator. Jesus is the creator. And so you know, fill in the blanks, Jesus does what? From eternity past, he has always been God, and yet he steps into time. He steps into humanity. He takes on human flesh. He enters into this. And when I say this, what do I mean? I mean brokenness. I mean a creation that is stuck in rebellion. A creation full of darkness and chaos when he created it good. And so you think John is saying, hey, as you read all these stories, as you experience Jesus and you've come face to face with him and you hear the way he talks to you, you got to remember this was God who made all things. This is God who made all things and he made it good. And now the gravity of that God who would make everything good stepping into this mess. And you watch the way that he engages with us. Who is this God? This is amazing. And this word would come in. And this also, I think, is important. We did an excursus on this at the end of a gathering a few months back as we started Ephesians, but um, there, there's something in theology called Arianism. And so often we know um, those who are part of an Arian theology as Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. These are people who would say that Jesus, the Son of God, is not truly God himself, or he is just a God, and he is a created being. This disproves this. Like, full stop. You cannot accept that. Jesus is God. I want you to hear that. We will emphatically, without hesitation, say, Jesus is God. To not know that Jesus is God is to totally miss who Jesus is. And John wants that to be so clear as he introduces this character. Jesus is God. He created all things and thus he must be God. Because it says nothing was created that was created apart from him. And so if Jesus is the one who created all things, nothing came into being except through Jesus. That means Jesus categorically must be God. There's no other option. He is God. And so you, again, you, just, you have to feel the weight of this, that Jesus is God himself coming into this calamity that he made good and we rebelled against. He shows up on the scene as God himself clothed in humanity. This is amazing. So I want you to hear me clearly. We have to take this. Jesus is the eternal God and always has been. When John introduces Jesus as this character, you need to hear emphatically that Jesus is the eternal God and he always has been. And the words of one of my favorite songs, you've been God for a long time. As you think of Jesus, we just cannot help with all of the things that can get me so frantic and worked up. You just think, you've been God for a long time. The one who stepped into this. <laughs> There's no one like him. And I look at verse four and five. It says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The first creative act, if you go back in Genesis, was to create what? Light. To separate out darkness and light. 
And now John says, introducing Jesus, the eternal God who has always been and always will be, the one who created everything. And now what is he? He is life and light. This is who he is. He is the life that was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The first creative act was to bring about light. Light shining in darkness like Jesus, who now is life. The light of men shining in darkness, and that darkness is not able to overcome it. Nothing will overcome that. This is tied to the purpose statement that we read back in chapter 20. Why did John write all this? There's so many other things I could include here. Actually, at the very end of the book, he says, like, we, we could, all the books of the world couldn't contain all the things that he did. But he's selected these select things so that you would know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and so that by believing in him, you might have life. You would have life. And so he is life. This is why you need to know who he is. The most important thing that you could ever decide is what you believe about Jesus. Who is he? Is he life for you? He is life. He is life and he is light. Life and light. But when we think about life and we think about light, our reality is that light can fade. Light can diminish. Light can fail. Life also can fade, diminish, and fail. And some of you are dealing with that firsthand, or maybe with someone that you love deeply. But the fact that we're, we're aging, we're f- frail, and you think of the way that we have light. If I don't pay that bill, it's going away. I can try to manufacture it myself. All these things, we so think simply in terms of a candle. What takes away that flame and the light that it gives off? There's probably more than this, but I can think of two very quickly. One is that a, a source or of power that is stronger overcomes it. Like the of someone blowing it out. Or some cloth covering, suffocating it, depriving it of oxygen. Some strong calloused fingers grabbing the wick. Some source of power stronger can overcome it. Or we just let the candle go. And what happens eventually? It runs out of fuel. For fire to give off light, it needs to be burning. To be burning, it needs something to consume. And so two ways that light and also life can be diminished. Something more powerful overcoming it or just simply being depleted of its own fuel. And do you know that that will never happen with Jesus because of the way that John introduced him? He's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He will never exhaust himself. He has all power. And yet, as he exhausts power, he's not exhausting power. He has it all, and it's never deplenished. He doesn't even have to add it back. He has it all. There's no beginning, no end. There's nothing that could overcome him. Nothing could step in and extinguish this light. He is the most powerful and he has everything at his disposal. It's not possible for Jesus, who is our life and light, to be overcome. He shines into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Another translation, it cannot comprehend it. And it actually is capturing the same two ideas. We just lose a little bit of it in our English. We can't even understand this. 
We certainly can't overcome it. And Jesus is mighty. He is so big. And I want to ask, how big is your view of Jesus? As John introduces him, there's no way to make him bigger. How big is your view of Jesus? Have you settled for, oh, you know, baby, born into a little manger there? And it's beautiful and it's true. But when you see that baby, as you think about that this week leading up to Christmas, as you celebrate this, you sing songs and you eat and drink and all the things that we do to celebrate his coming, don't let it stop with him being just a baby. This is the God of the cosmos. This is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. This is the God of all power and glory who's come into step into this mess to save us, to be light, to drive back the darkness. And what is the darkness? You think of the way that Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He said, for God said, let light shine out of darkness is also shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. But this is how we know. Where's the darkness? Well, according to what Paul just said, largely it's in our hearts. And the heart is the causal seat of all of our affections, decisions. It's the center of our being. Like, there's darkness in us. We are sinful, broken people. And yet God says, I won't leave you there. And put your faith in him. And his promise is that he will save you, that he is light shining into the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Do you need life and light in your life? Do you feel like you're just kind of just running on a treadmill and never making any progress? And you know that I'm going to run out of energy at some point. I'm going to face plant and fly off the back of this thing. Are you trying your absolute hardest, white-knuckling it, trying to pull yourself together to be good enough in the eyes of someone you love or even your own eyes or maybe the eyes of God? You need to realize you cannot. You cannot overcome the darkness, but Jesus, who is life and light, he can. Just let him shine in you. See the light of Christ. See who he is. This is God who has come to save us, and he did that by being born of a virgin Mary. So he would not have this imputed sin that we're all born with. He would live a sinless life as the son of God, God himself, wrapped in humanity. And he would be the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins, to satisfy the righteous demands of the law and the wrath of God because of our rebellion. That he would take our place on a cross because he loves us. Because he loves us, he would be light and life for us. The God who alone is able would step into this. So will you believe that he lived for you? Will you believe that he died for you? Will you believe that he rose again because he cannot be contained? He's offering you life and forgiveness of sin. So turn from your sin. Confess him to be Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the promise is that you will be saved. That your life is now wrapped up in his life. The word is still with us. We still encounter Jesus in his word, the word, now his written word, his revelation to us, making sense of all things. We don't fully understand it, but nothing can overcome it. And by his spirit, the spirit of Jesus with us, living in us, 
that Jesus left saying, it's actually better for me to go because I'm going to send the helper, the spirit who's now with all of us who believe. Life comes from believing in his name. What are you believing about him? John Piper says it like this. He said, it took John more than three years to figure out the fullness of who Jesus was. But he does not want his readers to take more than three verses to find out what took him so long to know. He wants us to have in our minds fixed and clear from the beginning of his gospel the eternal majesty and deity and creator rights of Jesus Christ. So as we read through this gospel and we'll start a church-wide reading plan on New Year's Day, every time that you encounter him, I pray so desperately that you encounter him knowing the introduction. For this Jesus is God himself who has come in love for you. That as you read about the things that he did, the things that he said, you would be just so enraptured with him. You would be so overwhelmed by his glory. You would be so moved by his profound love for you that he died for you. And that would just cause you to be overwhelmed and just have an overflow of love for him. That you would love him more than you ever have is my so, so deep hope for you. That you would know the God who loves us like this. So meet him. Spend time with him in a way that makes you scratch your head and say, what? This is God. So skeptic, seeker, stumbling, or doubting saint, will you believe this good news? There's a God who's come. And follower of Jesus, who can you share this good news with? You pray. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for what you've done for us. You sent your son, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you did that willingly and actually joyfully. And you didn't have to be afraid because you will never be overcome. You'll never be exhausted. Even in your humanity when you were exhausted, we see that you are still divine. The Father and the Spirit is still there with you, empowering you. But now you're glorified. You've been given the name that is above every other name. And so we bow our knees today to say, you are Lord. And we long for the day when we see every knee on this planet bowing. We know it's coming, confessing you to be Lord. But we start this gospel with our confession. You are Lord, and by that we say, you are God, my God. And so we cry out to you, oh God. Thank you.